All right. A uh, couple things before we get going here. Uh, we're still in the book of Galatians. Uh, we're heading uh, into the end of chapter 4, however, which means we're four-sixths of the way through, or to uh, do the math, that's two-thirds. Uh, <sighs> Two announcements, however. One, I sent you an email yesterday. Hopefully you got it. If you didn't get it, check uh, maybe your spam folder. Make sure you're getting uh, emails from me when they do arrive. Uh, we've got a Good Friday service that I announced for the first time yesterday. Good Friday takes place on April 7 this year. And uh, as always, it's the Friday leading up to Easter. And I want to make sure that everyone knows uh, you're invited. 7 to 8 p.m., on Good Friday, we'll have a service uh, in here. Uh, I think this is actually an important stop uh, on our journey uh, to Easter and to the resurrection, is recognizing uh, what frankly got us there, which is Christ's death, right? And so on that day, we are reminded of the gravity of the situation and the gratitude within our hearts uh, that we express uh, on that Friday leading into the celebration that is Easter. Uh, the second thing is, uh, next Sunday is, uh, is one Palm Sunday, uh, but it is also the first Sunday of the month. Now, usually we, uh, we do communion on the second uh, Sunday of the month. Uh, however, because Easter falls on the second Sunday, and it's not, uh, at least in my estimation, a, a day where we typically um, take communion or we... We're going to do it on the first Sunday. We're going to do it on Palm Sunday, right? And uh, there's something that's going to happen this next uh, Sunday. Uh, we're changing up communion. And uh, I'll be sending an email out later this week with other details of what that's going to look like. Uh, for three years, I guess, we've been in, uh, is when COVID started and we changed our our communion, and uh, we went to the, the sealed wafer and to the sealed cup. Uh, we're going to be doing it a little different next week, um, and it's going to involve actually uh, you coming forward for the very first time ever. Uh, someone will serve you uh, the, the bread, and they will look in your eyes, and they will say, this is the body of Christ that is broken for you. And then someone will serve you the cup and say, this is the blood of Christ shed for you. And uh, my hope is uh, that you feel like you are participating in something that is larger than, frankly, uh, just you sitting in the pews, but that now uh, you are taking this in communion with uh, the church as a whole. There's a few other reasons that I'll put in the email as to why we're doing this. And then when we go ahead and do it next week, um, I'll say a few more things as well. Let's begin today uh, with a word of prayer. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God, we are thankful for the communion that you have drawn us into, that we are united with you in your resurrection, that you have desired to love us, that you have desired to be with us, God, you desired so much that you sent your son to die on a cross on our behalf that we might be resurrected with him and that we might find ourselves in your presence, in your fullness someday. That is a hope that we all hold on to, Lord. Lord, I pray in the here and now, in this moment, this very moment, Lord, pour out your spirit upon us. 
Speak to us in this place. Reveal yourself to us in this place. Change us in this place. May we not leave here unchanged. God, soften our hearts this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in uh, the end of Galatians, and I'm just going to say it. This is probably the last time I'll ever preach on the allegory of Sarah and Hagar. So soak it in. <laughs> I, uh, have you ever read this passage before? Do you know this existed in your Bible? It's, a, it's an odd one. I'm just going to go ahead and put that out there. Uh, in a very um, important way, it's odd. It, and the oddness of it should actually challenge how you uh, maybe look at Scripture and even read Scripture. And if you were to ask the question, how does Scripture teach us to read Scripture? Uh, or how does Paul teach us to read Scripture? Uh, this morning might be a challenge to you. Because uh, what Paul does is he kind of flips over what you might expect to be the natural reading of Sarah and Hagar. Just kind of in brief, uh, Sarah, right, we know is the the wife of of Abraham, and they have a child together, and that child's name is Isaac. And and Isaac has uh, Jacob and and Esau, and, and Jacob... Is, is the one who has the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is the whole origin story of Israel and the Jews, right? And so what makes this uh, reading that Paul gives us this morning uh, odd is that Paul takes all of the Jews in Jerusalem and he says, their mother is not Sarah, it is Hagar, Right? This is, this is um, as, well, in his word, an allegory, an allegory. An allegory is not how we normally interpret scripture, is it? Right? I, I don't open up uh, the, the, whether Old or New Testament, and read uh, into it. But this is what Paul's doing this morning, and I, I just simply want to uh, point you to, to one idea. I've mentioned it in the past Uh, but it is worth mentioning uh, here uh, because this might be the most stark uh, example of Paul doing this. Paul and our New Testament as a whole, they read through, in my estimation, they read the whole of Scripture through a uh, what, what can be called a Christological lens, or, or through the lens of Jesus Christ and, and what happens uh, on Good Friday and, and Easter Sunday uh, and beyond, right? And, and Paul takes that as the starting point of understanding everything. And so here, he almost uses uh, the, uh, the event of Christ as a decoder of sorts to look into the Old Testament and to read it in a way that is a little different. Remember those, uh, there's like a, a red plate that you can kind of see through, and when you put it up against the words, uh, like new, new, do you know what I'm talking about? Have you, have you the kids use these? Uh, but this is essentially what Paul's doing. He's taking uh, the decoder of, of Jesus, and he's laying it over top of uh, the book of Genesis. And in it, he finds uh, Genesis revealing something uh, different, something that you and I might have missed if we just read Genesis, you know, straight through. Uh, But in light of Christ, what's he doing? Well, he's rereading it, and he sees two things sitting there. He sees freedom, and he sees slavery. 
freedom and slavery. And these are the two things, of course, we need to talk about this morning. But um, when he sees uh, the freedom there, he sees it in a way that uh, may not be the most natural reading of, uh, of the text or the way we would normally uh, read that text. But because he's reading it through the lens of Christ, he finds a different kind of freedom at play and, and frankly, a different kind of slavery. And he concludes the passage uh, with, uh, which is actually the first verse of chapter 5. And he says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. What I uh, want to say this morning is in some ways uh, not just uh, found right here in Galatians, the end of chapter 4, I want to try to pull together themes that have been running from from the very beginning of Galatians until now. And I want to pull them together in such a way uh, as to make sense of what Paul is doing uh, in this passage. Because what I think he's doing really throughout the letter is he's raising up two competing visions of God. He's raising up two competing visions of how we could understand the world, our place in the world. He's raising up these two visions, and he's saying one of them is freedom, and one of them is slavery. And these are, uh, this, this is a pretty stark call to uh, the Galatian people and to us this morning, uh, of course, to choose freedom, right? Who wishes to choose slavery? And he gets there uh, by uh, an interesting way. And to, to get into it myself, I think, uh, I, I think the way he's getting there is uh, with, with a relationship that exists between uh, what sometimes we call works and we call righteousness. The relationship between works and the relationship between righteousness. To start with the righteousness side, of this, I, w- I will just simply remind you of a sermon I preached. I'm not going to re-preach the whole thing, uh, in which I talked about Ephesians 2 as offering us a model. If if you've got your Bible, you should have your Bible open to uh, to our passage. But if you just kind of go ahead, uh, one two pages is all it took in my Bible to the book of Ephesians, and and there was a a sermon I I preached in which I pulled in. Uh, Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, and, and remember, uh, I, uh, I pointed out the fact that what uh, Paul is giving us is, is metaphor after metaphor after metaphor after metaphor of what uh, this new relationship looks like uh, with us, between us and God. And so, uh, starting in verse 13, for example, he gives us a spatial metaphor in which we are brought near to God by the blood of Christ. He gives us a war metaphor in which peace has been made between us and God. He gives us in uh, verse 16 a relational metaphor. God is reconciling us. 
in verse uh, 17, uh, he again uses this, this war metaphor. In, in 18, he uses um, this access metaphor. We are given access to the Father. Uh, in 19, he gives us the metaphor of like immigration. We are no longer uh, strangers and aliens. We are now actual citizens of the kingdom of God. In, in, uh, in the next verse, he talks about us being uh, family with God. Right? All of this, in my mind, all of these various metaphors, and, and, he, uh, and there is actually a couple more here, they get at what Paul is talking about in Galatians. He uses the word righteousness again and again. Righteousness um, on its face is a judicial term, right? You can think of a lawyer here or a judge. And God as a judge is saying, yes, righteous or unrighteous, right? I think Paul indicates that. Um, but I also think his metaphor for uh, how God is redeeming us is, is far bigger than the language of the courtroom. And that's why I pointed us to Ephesians 2, because Paul wants to talk about our relationship with God in a variety of different ways. And so when I read uh, righteousness language... I don't just use the courtroom image to understand what God is trying to do for us. I actually think uh, a, a good way to understand what Paul is trying to do is he's, he's, uh, um, he's telling us that we are in right relationship with God, that God is, is making this relationship whole again. And so when I hear about uh, right or righteousness, I think, how is God making me a son, right? How is God uh, uh, bringing together the, these two parties, myself and God, uh, which were at war, how is he bringing us peace that brings us together, right? And, and I, instead of casting it in, um, you know, like, uh, abstract terms of, uh, well, God is the, uh, this judge that's up there somewhere, and, and he's casting a verdict on me, and, and there's kind of an unconcerned, there's a dispassion between the two. I tend to not view God that way. I'll just uh, come at you with my, my biases. I think God is deeply personal. I think God is deeply relational, and he has called us into a father-son kind of relationship, Right? And so God is demonstrating throughout the book of Galatians that he wants us in right relationship, which gets us to the other half of the equation, which is, which is work. I said, uh, what, is, what is the relationship between work and, and righteousness or the things we do or don't do and our right relationship to God? And here, there's kind of two ways to run this. And, and this is what I think Paul, again, these two visions that Paul is, is putting up. And he's saying one leads to freedom and one leads to slavery. And he says, the one that leads to slavery says that actually I need to do the right things in life. I need to perform my function. I, I, I need to uh, make sure I, I do all the right things and, and don't do the wrong things. And if I, if I can do all of that, then I am in right relationship with God, right? This is one way. And Paul's going to say that way leads to slavery. 
That is a losing battle from the get-go. And then the other way says this. He says that actually, God loves you from the beginning. Loves you as a father loves a child with unconditional love. There is nothing my children can do that would make, them, make me love them any less. And parents in the room, I know most of you feel this way, right? That's not to say uh, when they do something wrong that, I, that there's not somehow consequences or, or I'm not somehow trying to, to fix this matter, but does it change my love for them? Most certainly not, right? And so I think that this is what Paul is offering up, that, that God's love actually precedes everything. This is where we start. And then the works side of it, the, the action side of it, the performance side of it, actually flows from God's love through me and out. We'll get to that in just a minute. Returning back to what this relationship between works and righteousness is not. We cannot work our way toward righteousness. That is, we cannot work our way towards God's loving embrace, would be another way to say that. We cannot work our way toward oneness and unity with God. We cannot somehow do enough things to to earn God's love. And if you think you can, this is a trap. It is a trap from hell. I think Paul would say that. It is a trap straight from the pit of hell. Because what Christ teaches us is that God's love and embrace precedes anything that we can do. We do not even, so we do not earn God's love. It is already there. If we think we must earn God's love, well, then we set ourselves up for failure, for disappointment, for tragedy. Because in this logic, we will let God down. There is no way around that. We will fail. We will let God down because we cannot do enough we cannot be perfect enough. And once we fail, we might say, I have let God down and he no longer loves me, which is oh so wrong, right? That is, that is wrong-headed thinking. This is not our relationship with God, the Father. Instead, what do we find? Paul says things like, in Romans, while we were yet sinners... While we were in that mess and that muck, what happens? Christ dies for us. God loves us so much that even in the mess of it all, he recognizes our desperate state of affairs and he sends his son. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Right, John 3.16, basic Christianity here. And Paul offers the same kind of view. And it is a view of God that he experienced himself in Christ Jesus. And this perspective says that God loves us unconditionally, without conditions. Christ saved us and poured himself out for us even before we knew we needed saving. And why would God do this? 
because God loves you and me and every human that has ever existed. And Paul says as much in Galatians 2.20 when he says that on the cross, Christ loved me and gave himself for me. Christ loved you and gave himself for you. Why? Is it because you were great? No. Is it because you did all the right things? No. God loved you because God loves you. God does not need your obedience to love you. He loves you in the midst of your sin and your wretchedness. In all your ugliness, like a perfect father or mother, God can do nothing other than love you. Does he love the wretchedness? Does he love the sin? Does he love the muck, the mire? Of course not. But through it, I assure you this much, he loves you. The logic uh, of, uh, of all of this can be seen in the, uh, throughout the book of Galatians in Paul's buzzwords that he uses over and over and over again. One of them is promise. Promise. We are said to receive a promise. And what is a promise? A promise says that God is giving something to us and it's simply a gift, right? It's not something that we earned. It's just God making a promise to us. Not because we've done the right things or said the right things or become the right person or rich enough or are uh, smart enough or whatever you might think. God just simply makes a promise. And we receive it because God loves us. Or he calls us an heir. Now, an heir receives an inheritance. Does that heir, does that child who receives the inheritance, do they deserve that money in some fashion? Have they done something to, research, to, to, to receive or deserve that money uh, that is coming to them through inheritance? No is the answer, right? No, they haven't done anything. They've, maybe they've been a, good, a great kid, sure. But does that mean, uh, you know, Bill, Bill Gates' kid uh, deserves all that, uh, you know, billions of dollars uh, coming to them? And, and no. They haven't done anything to deserve it. The inheritance is what? It's, it's, it's a gift. It's something that, again, a father or mother loves to just simply give to their child. And it is the same way with God. Or again, uh, maybe the, uh, the, um, uh, the metaphor or the, the buzzword that he keeps using is uh, this idea of God as a father as our Abba, as he said in, in, in the passage just earlier. Does a father truly love his child because of the things that they do? Do I love my, my daughter? She sang yesterday at a, uh, an all-county choir performance. Did I look up there and say, you know, she did a great job, so today I'm going to love her. <laughs> And then if she had made a mistake, I would say, not today, Lizzie. <laughs> it's silly. Who would do that? I would hope you wouldn't do that. I would not do that to my children. And God does not do that to us. God loves us unconditionally, again, as a father loves a child. Another buzzword 
grace. <laughs> this is everything, right? Grace. It's a gift. It's not a deserved gift. It's a gift, right? Or lastly, and this is the one that's at the bedrock, I think, of, of everything for Paul. Paul looks at Jesus' death and resurrection, and, and he becomes our first theologian uh, as to what is happening in the atonement. Uh, in, uh, in that moment, on Good Friday uh, and Easter Sunday, he's asking himself again and again, why did Jesus die? And why was he raised from the dead? And, and how does this affect me? And he comes back to at least, I mean, any number of points, of course. But uh, one of them is that Christ died before, before uh, we knew we were sinners. Christ is dying for us. And again, why? Because God loves us so much. He's willing to send his only son on our behalf, right? And we live in this grace, and you can see, again, coming back to the, why we started all of this to begin with, this, this uh, way of freedom versus a way of slavery. You can see how freeing this sort of uh, worldview is. A, a worldview in which we live praising a God who loves us no matter what is incredibly freeing. If we had a God who was a taskmaster, who was maybe a, uh, a corporate CEO doing performance reviews on us and making sure that we are performing properly, and if we weren't, we're probably going to lose pay, or, or worse yet, maybe we'll just get fired. But that is not the God of the universe. That's not the God that uh, Galatians describes. That's not the God we encounter on the cross and in the resurrection. God is a God of freedom, and he sets us free. Now, admittedly, there is a danger to this freedom, and one that we'll talk about in uh, the coming weeks we're actually going to pause, just in case you're wondering, uh, for Palm Sunday and for Easter. We're, we're going to shift out of Galatians for a few weeks, but we'll come back. And, uh, and Paul, Paul addresses the concern I'm about to say to you, which is, um, well, Eric, if we have such a uh, freewheeling God uh, who loves us no matter what, does that not invite us into a life of just doing uh, whatever we want, sinning or uh, you know, living however we want? Uh, the answer is no. Uh, Bonhoeffer calls that uh, like cheap grace. Uh, the book of James will come along and say uh, things like, uh, faith is great, uh, but faith without works is dead, right? So this is what James is going to say. Uh, and Paul's going to talk about it in a, a different way. He's going to talk about it in terms of the fruit of the Spirit, right? And that if we have the Spirit within us, that it calls out of us a certain kind of lifestyle, right? A lifestyle that is in uh, step with Christ himself. And it looks like love and joy and peace and patience and all the fruit of the Spirit, right? And this gets last, uh, to this last thing that I, I really want to talk about, which is when you put these two things side by side, uh, life in, in Christ and, and, and the freedom, and yet some kind of expectation 
to, to live rightly, it feels like a contradiction. And you might be asking yourself, and it's, a, it's actually a good question, can I do whatever I want in this life if I'm a Christian? Can I do whatever I want? Critical word here is, is want. Desire. What I desire. What I will. Because I think at its heart, this is what God wants most from us, actually. God wants our wills. He wants our desires. He wants our wants. More than anything else, he wants us to desire the things that he desires. And he wants us to get to a maturity where when I get up in the morning and I ask myself, what do I want this day? I'm simultaneously asking, what does God want from me this day? And these two things become the same thing. If your heart is aligned with God's heart, you ideally should be able to pursue your own desires and know that they are aligned with God's desires. We know, however, that this is not always the case. Uh, We pray for our desires, for example, and sometimes uh, they go unanswered. Uh, or the answer that we get is, uh, is not exactly what we desire. And of course, in these moments, what do we do? What we should do is we should fall back on trust, on faith, on the idea that not my will, but thine, right? And this is what Jesus even teaches us in the garden, It's the night before his death, and and he's saying, God, take this cup from me, but what? Not my will, but but thine, right? Your will, that is what I want. He said, and so he calls us into this kind of thinking as well. Uh, Mind you, this is actually not unlike what Jesus has already taught his disciples maybe a few years before when he teaches them the Lord's Prayer. And he says, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Which is to say, God, you are perfect. Your ways are perfect. And you are the Father who I know loves me. And so I will obey you as a child is to obey the Father. And he goes on and he says, your kingdom come and your will Your desires, God, your will be done. Which is to say, God, bring your kingdom and all its ways and bring it through me, your child, who lives in obedience to you. And let your will, your desires be done. Your desires, God, that is what I desire. I want to be an instrument of your will. I want to be an instrument of your ways, of your path. Align my will and desires with yours. And when my will departs from your will, bring me back into alignment because I trust you. I have faith 
that your ways are higher than my ways. And so if we ask the question, so can I do what I want? Can I do what I desire in this life? It's a bit of a yes and no. The yes is certainly because just like Paul said in Galatians 2.20, it is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. And your aim is to do what? It is to do the will of the Father. And when our will is at odds with the Father, it is time at that moment to remember our baptisms, that we were crucified with Christ, and it is his life that we seek to live. Galatians 5.1 said, For freedom Christ has set us free. And what is this freedom? It is the freedom to walk in the unconditional love of a perfect Father who is always for you and who is never against you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the love that you give us. The love that you demonstrated so boldly in sending your son to die on our behalf. For raising him from the dead. For offering us the hope of resurrection. For pouring out your spirit upon us. God, we have so much to be thankful for. And God, in all of this, you offer a way forward that is filled with freedom. A freedom that you call us into, that does have some expectations with it, if just one. That we align our wills with yours. That we desire the things that you desire. I pray, Lord, that we live into that today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As 